Hello, it's Wednesday, the 21st of December, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. The South Korean government has slashed its economic growth outlook to 1.6% for next year amid concerns over the global economic slowdown. We'll look closer at the forecast for news briefing shortly. South Korea's ambassador for North Korean human rights, Lee Jin-hwa, will join us for our in-depth segment today to discuss continuing efforts by Seoul and the international community to address North Korea's human rights violations. And then coming up for Korea Book Club, we take a look at a small collection of poems exploring thoughts about death and the meaning of life. Let's begin Korea 24. The finance ministry slashed its economic growth outlook for next year to 1.6%, citing persistent internal and external challenges to Asia's fourth-largest economy. Our KBS World Radio news editor, Koo Hee-jin, joins us in the studio now to give us the government snapshot for 2023, as well as our other headlines of the day. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, jang So we should begin by noting that the government's outlook is even darker than forecasts by the central bank and the state-run think tank KDI. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, break down the figures for us? Well, the finance ministry unveiled its latest forecast in its official 2023 economic policy direction on Wednesday. In it, the government says the nation's economy will lose steam next year, with growth slowing to 1.6%, bogged down by a global recession. The revised figure is 90 basis points lower than its previous outlook announced in June and gloomier than those by the state-run Korea Development Institute and the Bank of Korea. The two agencies earlier predicted growth of 1.8% and 1.7% respectively. The South Korean economy has only dipped below 2% five times in modern history, the latest of which was in 2020, when the economy contracted 0.7% due to the pandemic. It then turned around and posted growth of 4.1% last year. The ministry said sluggish trade and high interest rates will impede recovery next year in areas such as exports and domestic demand. First Vice Finance Minister Pang Gi-sun noted challenges at home and abroad for uh, Korea with the growth uh, sharply decelerating in the first half of the year. The announcement comes as the export-driven economy is expected to post its first current account deficit for the year in 14 years, Mm -hmm. according to early trade figures. Yes, Korea Customs Service data on Wednesday showed that the annual cumulative trade deficit for the first 20 days of December hit a record high for the period at $48.9 billion, putting the nation on course to post its first annual deficit since the global financial crisis of 2008. Vice Minister Bang said the government's dim outlook for the economy reflected the latest monthly industrial production figure, which was not factored into the BOK and KDI figures. According to Statistics Korea late last month, industrial output fell 1.5% in October from a month earlier, marking the biggest drop in 30 months. 
consumption also declined for the second consecutive month amid waning investment. The ministry also cut its outlook for this year by 0.1 percentage points to 2.5 percent. And meanwhile, uh, expects inflation next year to grow 3.5 percent, down from 5.1 percent this year. Let's turn now to some late-breaking news that we're receiving. The National Assembly Speaker Kim Jinpyo said on Wednesday that a plenary parliamentary session will convene a Friday afternoon, aiming to pass the long-held-up passage of next year's budget bill. Can you tell us the latest? Well, Kim announced his decision in a statement to hold a plenary session at 2pm Friday. He wants to ensure the bill's adoption during the upcoming plenary session, whether it be a version as agreed upon between the two rival parties as or as the government initially proposed if the two sides fail to reach a consensus by the deadline. Failing either option, the Speaker said a modified version as proposed by the main opposition Democratic Party may be put to a vote due to the lack of agreement. Uh, The announcement is apparently an ultimatum from the Speaker Speaker amid a stalemate between the two, uh, the ruling People Power Party and the DP, forcing them to miss uh, two previous deadlines. Let's continue on now to some of the other headlines of today. The Special National Assembly Committee investigating the fatal Itaewon crowd crush began its first on-site probe on Wednesday, nearly a month after the investigation plan was approved by Parliament. So can you tell us uh, more today? Well, the main opposition DP uh, representative Wu Sang-ho serving the panel as the panel chief and other committee members first paid their respects at a memorial set up at Nuxapyeong Station near the site of the tragedy. Lawmakers of the ruling People Power Party who returned to the committee after quitting in protest against the DP's passage of a motion to dismiss Interior Minister Lee Sang-min over the tragedy joined uh, representatives from the DP, the Minor Justice Party and the Basic Income Party. After the panel chief pledged to get to the bottom of the disaster and hold to account those found responsible, the committee was briefed by fire authorities on the situation at the time of the surge. The members then moved to the Itaewon police station where they reproached the police for their mismanagement of the Halloween festivities and their insufficient response to the incident. Meanwhile, a special police team investigation into the Itaewon crowd crush has again requested arrest warrants for former Yongsan police chief Yi Imje, as well as the former head of the Yongsan 112 Situation Room, Song Byungju. So can you tell us more? Well, the Seoul Western District Prosecutor's Office resubmitted the requests on Tuesday evening at the behest of the special probe team, 15 days after the Seoul Western District Court dismissed the team's initial request for warrants for the pair. He he is suspected of professional negligence, resulting in the death and fabricating uh, official documents while Song is accused of failing to properly handle emergency calls on the night of the tragedy that claimed 158 lives. The special police unit also sought an arrest warrant for two senior officials of of the uh, Yongsan district office, including its chief, Park Hyung, on charges of professional negligence resulting in the deaths. 
Let's get a weather update now because snow blanketed much of the central regions, including the capital area, on Wednesday. And、uh, more is forecast across the nation through、uh, Christmas Eve on Saturday. Can you give us the latest weather update? Well, according to the Korea Meteorological Administration, cold air from the north will travel southward in the upper atmosphere from Wednesday afternoon or Thursday amid an expansion of the continental anticyclone. Such conditions will create snow and clouds over the country's west coast, while low pressure passes through the country between Thursday and Friday, which will further push the snow front over inland areas. Up to 25 centimeters of snow is expected in South Chungcheong Province along the west coast, in the southwestern Jeolla region, parts of Jeju Island, the eastern Ulleung Island, and Tokdo Islets between Thursday and Saturday. Over 50 centimeters are forecast for Jeju's mountainous regions. Up to 10 centimeters will likely fall over western parts of Gyeongsang provinces, the five border islands along the west coast, and southwestern parts of Gyeongsang province, as well as North Chungcheong province. A cold snap will return on Thursday due to the frigid air entering from the north, with morning lows ranging from minus 19 to minus 3 degrees Celsius on Friday, while daytime highs. Will likely stay between minus 11 degrees Celsius to above、uh, two above zero. We'll wrap it up there for our news briefing today. Hejin, thank you for those updates. Thank you. South Korea's Unification Ministry hosted an international forum in Seoul on North Korea's human rights situation last week, in the administration's continuing efforts to raise awareness on the issue. This came shortly before South Korea co-sponsored a UN General Assembly resolution condemning human rights violations by the North. Although it was the 18th consecutive year for the resolution to be adopted, it was the first time in four years that South Korea. Had co-sponsored it. For more on the efforts being made by Seoul and the international community to address this issue, we have joining us via video today South Korea's ambassador for North Korean human rights, Lee Shinhwa. Ambassador Lee, thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let us start with that event hosted by the Seoul's Unification Ministry. It was called the 2022 International Dialogue on North Korean Human Rights. It was also sponsored by the United Nations Human Rights Office here in Seoul, and the Unification Minister Kwon Yongsae himself delivered the opening address. Understand that you served as moderator for the event, Ambassador Yi. So, can you tell us how did the event go, and can you give us a summary of some of the、uh, major issues that were discussed there? Okay. Well, actually, I'm not only moderator; I was a kind of a designer、mm. uh, to make that happen.、Uh, the reason I just、uh, work with the、uh, Ministry of Unification to hold that conference is、uh, mainly because of the two reasons. Number one, as you see in my title. Uh, it's important is、uh, in international cooperation on the North Korean human rights issues, right? But as you know, human rights issues should be a very universal. But unfortunately, 
not only in uh, the, the, like this country in North Korea, but also in international community, it's been largely politicized and polarized over what we will uh, describe as a, a human rights issue, particularly North Korean human rights issues, depending on uh, like a political circumstances. Mm. Therefore, during my short tenure and the limited capacity, I kind of tried to uh, make a, a political, domestic, and global consensus over in, uh, the, what we mean by North Korean human rights. I know it is very difficult, but I would like to give a try. So the thankfully, both Ministry of Unification and the Foreign Affairs have been very helpful for me uh, for that uh, causes. So at the very first uh, event, I just uh, convened this international conference, which was largely supported by not only Minister of Unification, but also former Secretary General Ban Ki-moon was there in person to talk about it. And also, uh, it was a kind of international hybrid conference because uh, it was a, uh, it, 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 we ha- I only have a very short time period to prepare. So it, it, not, it, it wasn't that easy to invite all eminent, international eminent scholars in mm. to, to Seoul at the end of the year, so that we, I decided to make an on and offline so-called hybrid conferences, so where Robert King, who was a former U.S. Special Envoys, and also Professor Chin Gyu from Stanford and Victor Cha from Georgetown University, who have been long committed on this issue, and also James Heenan from the Seoul uh, UN uh, Human Rights uh, Seoul Office, the representatives is newly appointed, as you know, and also the the my predecessor five years ago. We had a the one year uh, term for uh, special. I'm sorry, the ambassador on this my, my position, the mm. professor Lee Jung who was there as well. So those people were getting together for the first sessions, talk about why accountability is very important when we address the North Korean human rights issues. At the same time, we highlighting if we can only mention about the accountability, it's going to be very hard to somehow the talk or work with the North Korean regime because those regime is the obviously the the actor who perpetuate the the human rights the violation, right? Right. Uh, so that how we can uh, make a so-called constructive engagement, including humanitarian assistance, uh, can do something to improve the North Korean human rights issue. So we together with accountability. So that is what we've been discussing for the first session. And in related to that subject, uh, for the second session, I, we invited uh, NGOs and civil society and some scholars who's been working for a long while on this issue. So that is a kind of the basic idea that what I and by help of the Unification Ministry uh, did this conference. Sure. So this event uh, was essentially uh, your brainchild. Uh, you were the one, uh, the driving force behind it. But uh, as we mentioned, you were uh, supported by the Unification Ministry and the current administration. Uh, it seems like this administration is looking to take on the North Korean human rights issue head on. Uh, how would you describe the administration's stance on this issue? And how is Seoul and the Unification Ministry planning to continue to address it moving forward? Well, I don't. I'm. I'm not in a position to represent the position of the Ministry of Unification, as you know. Uh, but uh, if I can roughly talk about what Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Ministry of Unification uh, uh, endeavor to work 
to improve the North Korean human rights issue is while they are supporting uh, the principle of accountability because there is not only the, the matter of the punish, punishment for those perpetrators, but also that can be a kind of preventive measures for the, the future, uh, like, uh, like outright the crime, right? Mm. So that's one thing. But uh, unlike uh, just a previous conservative government, I would say uh, they also are interested in uh, engagement as well, because the humanitarian assistance is very important, if not the critical means to improve uh, North Korea human rights and livelihood of North Korean ordinary people. Right. So that, uh, as you can see from the minister, the government's audacious initiative or bold initiative, uh, it's not only accountability, but also those the, uh, constructive engagement, including humanitarian assistance are kind of the, I would say, dual track what current government tried to pursue in terms of this subject. Sure. It was also interesting that this forum came uh, shortly before the UN General Assembly uh, adopted a resolution condemning human rights violations by North Korea. Uh, that took place uh, last Thursday, local time in New York. It was the 18th consecutive year for the resolution to be passed, but the first to be co-sponsored by South Korea in four years. Uh, this year's resolution also added calls for North Korea to release all information pertaining to foreign nationals subjected to human rights violations by the regime, while expressing concerns over what was referred to as the illegal detention, uh, torture and execution of foreign nationals. This also comes as South Korea has been exerting efforts to obtain information on the shooting death of a Seoul fisheries official uh, by North Korean soldiers in 2020, an incident uh, that has become very uh, controversially political in South Korea at the moment. But uh, going back to that UN resolution first, what do you make of this year's resolution? How significant was it? Okay. As you indicated as well, it marks the 18th consecutive year, right? Uh, that is the penholder state was the, as a user suspect European Union, but uh, that, that is the kind of the things who, with highlighting uh, for international closer efforts to uh, improve the human rights conditions in the North Korea, which is a very reclusive and very dictatorial state, right? And this resolution, as I said, the European Union has been championed for this, expressed that grave concerns over the very uh, like a serious, dire human rights situation in uh, impoverished the North Korea, uh, while they, they also expressed um, and calling for the, what we should do uh, to deal with those illegal detention, torture, and arbitrary killing or execution of foreign, including foreign nationals in these countries. And 63 countries um, joining here as a co-sponsorship country, including Korea. And as we mentioned, the first time in four years, the Korea was uh, uh, joined. But I want to recall you that uh, in the third committee of the UN General Assembly in November, uh, unanimously adopted uh, this resolution, mm. and the North Korean envoy to the UN at that time, the, the, the ambassador Kim, right, is uh, rejected and condemned, harshly condemned uh, this resolution, the, uh, indicating that it is a grave, politically motivated, fabricated pro pro provocations mm. aimed at undermining the North Korea's uh, 
socialist system and the infringement of the sovereign state and etc. Uh, but I think it is very important because this uh, resolution is called for uh, not only uh, like improve the North Korean ordinary people's livelihood, but also the right to information. So release all information related to foreign national subjects to human rights violation by the regime. I think that is a noteworthy as well. And uh, in the, the in the in the beginning in the beginning you you asked me about the Ministry of Unification uh, sponsored the international hybrid conference right that mm. I explained. But afterwards, uh, as I said, that was a kind of the first series, and the second and third was happening as well. Both conducted in Korean last Monday, and one of them is what I call high-profile expert seminar, mm. where I invited the. Uh, the former minister or ambassadors who happen to be also the professors, suppose who have a policy and academic experience, but several of them highlighting, well, it is great uh, news for the South Korea to becoming a co-sponsored state, but hopefully in, in the future, we can be a penholder state like a European Union so that we can kind of initiate this kind of resolution, because obviously, as we all know, uh, North Korea is not anybody to us, right? As a uh, former ambassador has mentioned before, and also this is the kind of the our issues as well. So, uh, hopefully, as I said, uh, as I continue to having this kind of meeting, we can having a better idea and better strategies to how we South Korea can more effectively and more creatively uh, engaging in international mm. dialogue. UN debate or UN resolution uh, to virtually improve the North Korean human rights conditions. Sure. And also the new calls, as you mentioned uh, in the resolution, for the release of all information pertaining to foreign nationals uh, subjected to uh, human rights violations by the regime. Would you say the case with the uh, South Korean officials, the South Korean fisheries official that was uh, shot to death in 2020, that is a relevant example uh, that uh, for the new calls to be made in the resolution, you say? I believe so, because there are large uh, controversies in, in, the, in our country, right? I think that is a pretty waste, wasteful political dialogue. We are here talking about some human rights. It's not a, just a, a, like a question of... A, I'm, I'm, I'm referring, by the way, both to uh, those the un, unfortunate the, the, the killing, un, unfortunate deaths by like a, a hostile killing or by the North Korea's the, the Mr. Lee, and also like a forceful repatriation of those two fishermen, mm. North Korean fishermen to North Korea. So like uh, some political uh, party was highlighting uh, like whether it is uh, like a uh, forceful, I, I'm sorry, like uh, the voluntary like uh, coming to the North or the, whether these two fishermen is a uh, kind of a uh, crime Commuter and etc. I think those things are when it comes to the action itself, like uh, North Korea killed our nationals, mm. and then also those two fishermen against their own will or forcefully repatriated. That is a matter of the violation of international law. I think that is the essence what we have to discuss when it comes to the, their human rights. But uh, I think uh, we've been like too much politicized over this issue. So try to kind of avoid or like dilute the essence what we have to deal with. So hope, I'm, I'm glad that this current government uh, tried to deal with right. the essence of what went wrong. 
So I think that is a key issue, and that was obviously supported by international community, as you see in this uh, the resolution. Let me also ask you briefly about your recent visit to Japan, uh, where you discussed the issue of Japanese abductees in the north. Uh, Seoul's foreign ministry said you held talks with Japan's uh, chief cabinet secretary, Matsuno Hirokazu, and explained Seoul's policy on uh, North Korea's human rights. Uh, is there anything more you can tell us about what was discussed and how South Korea and Japan can cooperate to address uh, the human rights issue in North Korea? Okay. Well, I was invited by Ministry of the, the Foreign Affairs of Japan. So I, together with me, they invited also the Elizabeth Salmon, who is a special rapporteur of the United Nations. So both two of us were like a keynote speakers in international symposium, which followed, which was followed by uh, those abducted families and students, uh, like uh, some the, the discussion about uh, the, how they um, so have been suffering because of the. Since the Japan, I'm sorry, North Korea abducted their their daughters or mothers, and etc. So anyway, while Elizabeth Salmon uh, highlighting the importance of the UN and international communities' attention and cooperations for uh, Japanese the, the remaining uh, allegedly remaining abductees in in North Korea, it turned out to be twelve abductees. Because out of the 17 abductees officially acknowledged by the North Korean the Kim Jong Il, uh, five, only five came back to Japan. So 12 left. So I think those 12 they wants to highlight. They wants want on them to come back or they wants to know about their news. So it was all out effort, national effort mm. they've been working on. Uh, but in the meantime, what I highlight is uh, we South Korea has a uh, 500 at least 516 abductees were still in uh, in North Korea. Uh, and in addition, also, we have uh, six abductee detainees who's been officially recognized by North Korea. So what I told them is uh, it would be great we South Korea and Japan could work together to raise the awareness about this issue of the abductees and advocate for their release. It's because Japan only focusing on their 12 abductees. So I just highlighting our co-work Mm. So that that could include uh, robbing the international community and participating in multilateral uh, effort to address this issue. Sure. And also one thing I told to the, the minister when I met them, um, the collaboration on sanction is also important uh, for put for two two countries as well. And also, uh, as you know, when we, it is very hard for Korea and Japan military cooperation. Uh, it's very difficult, right? Sure. Even in the event of screen military provocation, because that faced a large domestic and neighboring countries' opposition and blame. But probably this bilateral cooperation between two countries uh, should be less difficult in the area of human rights, which in turn sure. contribute to our bilateral future-oriented cooperation. That was I was highlighting too the, when I meeting with several the high officials of the Japan ministries, and also I had an opportunity to meet with the family members. Right. Of abductees, uh, of including uh, Yokoda, uh, who, who's been a very highlighting person in Japan, but but thankfully uh, the mother, uh, the Yokomi, help me the name, <laughs> but he she her she was very calm sure. and she agreed with me together with uh, uh, her her son, uh, highlighting the importance of the 
our the bilateral con 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 contributions. And he think uh, she said uh, when he was she was addressing Japanese abductive problem, including her daughter. Uh, it, uh, it would be good if we he can, we can talk about the Korean abductive issues or other foreign uh, abductive the problems. So I think there was uh, Ambassador. the we are unfortunately running out of time. So let me just ask you one more question. Uh, what do you think more uh, can be done by South Korean international community to address uh, the North Korea human rights issue, especially when some are saying that uh, perhaps uh, that is an issue that needs to be resolved after North Korea's denuclearization? Okay. Sorry, I don't have enough time. I have so many other things to discuss with you. Hopefully mm. we can have another time to talk about it. Well, let me tell you this. When it comes to North Korean human rights issue, at least three issues have to be addressed. Number one, North Korean people within North Korea. And uh, number two is the, those overseas defectors, particularly in China. We have to make sure they are not forcefully repatriated to the North Korea where they are subject to harsh punishment, if not killing itself. And then third is uh, the issue of the POW, prisoner of war, and also post-war abductees and detainees problems. While Japan making that is a national, national, you know, like a, you know, the, the priority agenda, mm. I think we have been side we sidelined those human rights issues uh, in the in the serious consideration of uh, inter-Korean relationships. But look what happens. Well, North North Korea has their own timetable for nuclear development or like military provocations and, and etc. So that we have taken our own agenda and our own timetable and our own international cooperations to improve North Korean human rights issues. I think of, I do believe the North Korean military provocation and human rights abuses are the two sides of the same coin. We have to link those things as a package to pursue it. I think that is the only way we mm. can effectively address the problem of North Korea questions. Well, we appreciate you making the time to speak to us today on these issues. We've been speaking to Yi Xinhua, South Korea's ambassador for North Korean human rights. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 4.34 points, or 0.19% on Wednesday, closing the day at 2,328.95. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ rose, however, gaining 2.57 points, or 0.37%, to close the day at 705.70. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 3.91 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,285.71. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on to Korea Trending, a daily segment looking at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have Walter Lee to bring us those stories today, back in his usual yes. slot here <laughs> for Career Trending. Hello, Walter. It's good to see you. Good to see you. It's great to be back in this slot. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so uh, what do you have for us first? OK, so first we'll talk about a drunk driving incident involving a Korean celebrity that occurred earlier this week. We'll also discover which South Korean player was included in the top 10 goals of the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. And finally, we'll discuss US billionaire Elon Musk's announcement that he will step down as CEO of Twitter. 
Okay, let's get into stories, and we are starting, unfortunately, with mm. another celebrity DUI incident. Can you tell us more? Yes. Yeah, so, singer and actor Iru apologized on Tuesday in a post on his social media for drunk driving, and announced he will be suspending all activities in order to spend time on self-reflection. Now, the singer, whose real name is Cho Song Hyun, owned up to the media reports of his crime, which were released the previous day. He expressed apologies to the producers and the staff of the TV drama in which he was set to appear in. Now, police booked the 39-year-old for driving under the influence after he ran into a guardrail on Seoul's Gangbyeon Expressway, at around 11.25pm on Monday. According to police, Cho's blood alcohol level was high enough for his licence to be suspended. OK, importantly, was anyone hurt in the incident? Yeah, so fortunately no one was hurt, including a male passenger that was reported to be in the same car at the, at the same time of the incident. So police are planning to question Cho on what happened that night and also determine whether or not to book the male passenger on charges of aiding and abetting impaired driving. I understand that there is another reason that this story has drawn particular attention, Walter. Yes, that's correct. So that's because it was found that last month police sent to the prosecution a DUI case involving Cho. Now, according to KBS, Cho was booked for drunk driving in Yongsan in September. Now, at that time, the singer told police that his fellow passenger was the one who drove the car. Now, the police initially decided not to send the case to the prosecution after failing to confirm that he was the one behind the wheel. However, the police reversed their decision and decided to send the case to the prosecutors last month on suspicions that Joe lied about who was the one that drove that night. Now, Joe, who is the son of trot singer Ted Jina, debuted as a singer in 2005 and released hits such as Black Glasses and White Snow. He began his acting career in 2017 by appearing in a KBS TV drama. Yes, so as I hinted at the start, this is the latest in a string of celebrity Mm. DUI cases over the years. It does make you wonder why it keeps happening, especially when there is the uh, Teddy service in Mm. Korea where you can have people drive you and your car back to your home at a fairly affordable price. It uh, continues to be a mystery. Okay, in any case, let's move on to our second story. What do you have for us next? Right, so a goal scored by Team Korea's Baek Sung-ho has been included among the top 10 goals of the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Now, a list released on FIFA's website on Tuesday studied a total of 172 goals scored in 64 matches. So the goal scored by Beck was netted in the 31st minute of the second half during South Korea's match against Brazil in the round of 16 on December 6th. Now, his goal was the only South Korean goal scored in the game that ended with a 4-1 loss. Yes, it was an absolute bullet and uh, Peck scored it in his World Cup debut as well, right? Yeah, that's correct. So his long-range effort hit the top corner of the net to give South Korea a consolation goal. Now, some media reports described his goal as one of the best long shots of the tournament. Now, Beck's goal that day was the 100th to be made since Paolo Bento took the helm of the Korean national team. Many had marvelled at Beck's goal as it got past Liverpool goalkeeper Alison Becker, who is regarded as to be one of the best goalkeepers in the world. Yes, it's a shame that it came during the loss to Brazil, but the stunning nature of the goal gave it a bit of a consolation for Korean fans, I guess. Uh, What other goals have been included in the top 10 list? Well, some of the notable goals to mention is the acrobatic volley that Brazil's Richarlison scored against Serbia, Kylian Mbappe's top right bin stunner against Poland, and Al Dorsari's second goal against Argentina. Fans around the world will vote on the best goal of the 2022 World Cup, and the winner will be announced on FIFA's website. Fans will be able to cast their votes until Thursday.
Okay, let's continue on to our final story now. What else was trending today? Right, so U.S. billionaire Elon Musk has expressed intent to step down as CEO of Twitter. Now, in a tweet on Tuesday, Musk said he will resign as Twitter's CEO when he finds someone, quote-unquote, foolish enough to take the job. So he did not elaborate on the timeline for the process of finding his replacement. Right, so does this mean then that Musk will not have any role uh, on the microblogging site? Well, not exactly. In Tuesday's tweet, Musk was quick to add that he will continue to run the software and servers teams. Now, Musk's announcement comes after he suddenly launched a poll on his Twitter account last Sunday asking users, should I step down as head of Twitter? I will abide by the results of this poll. Now, the poll shows that 57.5% of roughly 17.5 million users wanted Musk out. So the move came in the face of criticism about his decisions to fire nearly half of Twitter's workers and unilaterally suspend the Twitter accounts of several journalists. And this all comes less than two months after Musk acquired the company, right? Yeah, that's right. So he first kicked off efforts to acquire the US social media company on April 14th and concluded it on October 27th, purchasing the company for $44 billion US dollars. His controversial decisions for Twitter is having a negative impact on the stock price of Tesla. Share prices in the electric vehicle company owned by Musk fell nearly 14% over the last five sessions. Yes, it's been a tumultuous couple of months on the platform. We'll see who does eventually take over and whether it continues to be a tumultuous time <laughs> in the meantime. Uh, we'll wrap it up there for Career Trending Today. Walter, thank you for those stories and we'll see you again next time. Merry Christmas. Next up, it's a career book club, our weekly segment looking at the world of career literature through works available in translation and beyond. And for that, we have our literary critic, Barry Welsh, joining us in the studio once again. Barry, hello. It's good to see you. Yes, good evening. Okay, so what do you have for us today? So tonight we're reviewing a small collection of poems by Huang Dongyu, uh, translated by Brother Anthony. And the collection is called Wind Burial, or Pungjang in Korean. And the Korean uh, collection was published back in 1995. The entire uh, collection, the entire Pungjang collection, hasn't been translated. I think there's over 70 poems in it. But you can find a selection of five of the poems on Brother Anthony. His website, including the poems Wind Burial Number One and Wind Burial Number Three. And, you know, many listeners I'm sure will know that Huang is an extremely popular poet in, in Korea. His works have enchanted, you know, many, many readers over the years. Uh, he is an older gentleman now. He's at around 84 years old, and I believe he, he's retired. Mm. But he was very active, you know, not just as a poet, but also as an academic. He was a translator and a literary critic. And, you know, he debuted all way back in 1958. He was a professor for many years in the English Language and Literature Department of Seoul National University. And he has, of course, won many of the the big poetry and literature prizes in Korea as well. So uh, in 1980, he won the Korean Literature Award. And then about a decade later, he won the Isan Literature Prize as well. And although he is so beloved and, and celebrated here in Korea, he 
is not as well known, I think, to you know general uh, English readers, which really is a, a great shame because as these poems we're going to talk about show, he's a very talented writer uh, and a craftsman with uh, a distinctive voice. Yes, so I understand that Huang is genuinely uh, a revered poet in Korea, as you say. His career spans over five decades, five decades, and he has uh, published uh, many famous volumes of poems, uh, including One Clear Day in 1961 and Snow Falling in Samam in 1975, in which he touches on various themes. But uh, one of the themes he is best known for is death, uh, musings about death. And that's mm-hmm. what he explores in the collection we're talking about today. So uh, how is Huang writing about death in these poems then, Barry? Right, so uh, the, this Wind Burial Collection, so there's, se- there, there's several dozen poems in it, and it was written, uh, I believe, over 14 years before it was published in 1995. And he was almost 60 when this, po- this collection was finally published. So he started writing these poems uh, when he was a middle-aged man, I, I guess roughly in his mid-40s. Uh, and these poems they're all uh, about this experience of reaching and then moving beyond middle age into your later years. So he's at least, you know, he's partly writing about this major milestone in a person's life, uh, transitioning from the, your your peak, as it were, in, in middle age, and then uh, into the beginning of the decline into old age. And if you let me read the, the first stanza from Wind Burial Number 1, I mm-hmm. think that'll give you an idea of the, the total. Sure. Uh, so here we go. Uh, when my life is done, let my body be left exposed to the wind, dressed as I am with my electric watch still working, strapped to my wrist to prevent me feeling sad. Put me into a rented taxi inside a leather suitcase so that I don't feel too cold. Then off to Kunsan, or if the searches are too severe, Komso will do, and there transfer me to a barge. Uh, and so... Yeah, this is someone who's beginning uh, or, or facing up to their uh, mortality, looking at the end as it approaches and then letting everything go. Uh, and there's a really wonderful essay about these deaf poems by Professor Hwang Hoon Sung, uh, who's a, professor, a literature professor at Dongguk University and also a poet. And he calls these poems uh, of, of Hwang, Hwang Donggyu uh, a tour de force of his profound insight into death and life. And this insight is that Life itself uh, is is a, a burial process that we all experience. Yes, well, Barry, first, uh, thank you for that reading. Uh, beautifully read. I understand oh, uh, that these uh, poems are also inspired by a folk burial tradition. Can you tell us a bit more about these uh, folk traditions that Huang was inspired by when writing this uh, sequence of poems and death? Right, so super interesting. So wind burials, or they're sometimes referred to as uh, sky burials. So this is a folk tradition in which the corpse uh, is left out in the open and allowed to decompose and and disappear gradually. And it's practiced, or it was practiced in in some Chinese provinces and also in Tibet and Mongolia and other places. Uh, and the poems in Wind Burial, the sort of the 70 poems are, are, are linked by this uh, symbol, this you know, recurring uh, symbol of this Wind Burial uh, and the wish for, for Huang, the, the poet, to be buried in wind, as he says. Mm. And you know, we can sort of see this as a way of recognising death as a natural process, it's death as part of, of life, and that this disappearing is something that happens to, to all of us and it happens to us 
all continuously throughout our lives, not just at this sort of one uh, single moment of death. So in in the sequence of poems, uh, you know, we that that first stanza we read that was Huang's uh, uh, sort of spirit or revenant or soul but sort of beginning this journey uh, to and, and here he's going to Sonyudo uh, Island Sonyu Island mm. uh, and gradually disappears uh, and later in that same poem he he writes uh, covered with the wind like a quilt without makeup or deliverance adjusting the wind as one adjusts a quilt until all the body's last drop of blood has dried let me play with the wind. And I think perhaps we can see here that as painful and sad as death inevitably is, we shouldn't fear it. We get the sense uh, that we get to leave the world of of, uh, our struggle behind and go back into nature. And there's something almost quite Buddhist about this and and the sort of acceptance that Huang displays in these poems. He he is just giving in to death without protesting. And I think perhaps that's an attitude he's telling us, you know, an attitude to death that that we should all perhaps try to cultivate. Yes, perhaps this thought of uh, burial is uh, quite alien to us who are used to practices such as burial or cremation Mm -hmm. or even being buried at sea but it's quite a powerful image allowing a body to slowly disappear in the wind as such although perhaps that's only possible in colder windier climates like Uh tibet and mongolia uh but anyway barry uh what do you think we should make of these poems then understand that uh, huang has uh, commented on the works and how he views them when looking back on them. Right. So uh, at around the time this collection was was published, so he you know he'd been working on them for such a long time. He also wrote and published an essay collection called "The Light and Shadow of My Poetry," and that also that whole sort of poetry collection hasn't been translated yet. But again, uh, Professor Huang Hun Song from uh, Dongguk University translated a small section in an essay that he wrote. Um, where he records, uh, you know, Huang is saying, uh, wind burial is an allegory for life itself. Unwittingly, we're dying gradually. Wind burial in this view is nothing less than our life itself, which dies gradually while continually winning over or being defeated by death. Uh, And he goes on to conclude by saying that life and death are both sides of the same coin. And these ideas, they run through the poems, this one, you know, the wind burial sequence, uh, this idea that life and death are inseparable, that we have to make our peace with that. Uh, And this acceptance of death and life is with us all the time and it's a process that we have to go through and we should try and befriend it. And uh, I think these are truly inspirational poems and certainly well worth reading. Yes, they sound quite uh, mysterious and melancholic. Yes. Uh But perhaps some uh, life-affirming elements yes, absolutely. Uh, as well in somewhat of a counterintuitive way, mm-hmm. should we say. It sounds very interesting. Uh, we'll post a link of Brother Anthony's translations on our Twitter and Instagram pages so our listeners can seek them out uh, if they are interested to see the poems for themselves. Once again, the collection is called Wind Burial or Pungjang by Huang Dongyu. Uh, next week, Beth will be joining us. Uh, so this is the last time we're seeing you this year, Barry, actually. So mm-hmm, that's right. It's been another busy year with lots of works that we've covered as a final thought today and a very brief uh, roundup of the year, should we mm-hmm. say. What was your 
perhaps a literary highlight this year. What was your favourite book of 2022? Okay, so it was very difficult to single out uh, one one book to mention here. So just let me very quickly mention a couple of books. Okay, sure, so course. I think this year there was a great year for Korean novels that were drawing on the crime or thriller genre elements mm-hmm. and sort of doing all sorts of really uh, interesting things with them. So earlier in the year we had Gu Byung-ho's Old Woman with the Knife, which was right, this incredible yes, uh, sort of spin on the uh, assassin genre but with a, an older Korean lady as a central character which was fantastic and again it has important and serious things to say but also just a sort of super fun uh, enjoyable genre book and then also using that sort of crime genre to do interesting things and look at uh, society in different ways was Kwon Yosun's Lemon which we read way back as well so mm. a, a murder m- mystery that sort of unspools over a couple of decades and uh, also Kumsuk Gendry Kim's graphic novel The Waiting was an incredible piece of work uh, which you know again is dealing with sort of Korean history and uh, you know personal history between relationship between a a mother and a daughter Uh, and again just a beautiful and sort of heart-rending piece of work and uh, also what else can I say so J.M. Lee's novel Broken Summer was also fantastic again a sort of crime adjacent story about a, a sort of murder mystery uh, that 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 uh, sort of it spans several decades, and then perhaps also uh, Kim Onsu's The Cabinet, which I think was an excellent novel that not many people seem to talk about this year. This sort of uh, uh, extremely interesting and different and strange uh, sci-fi book, and uh, maybe I'd also like to say, finally, uh, saw. Um, Oh God! So so Sujin, so Sujin's Korean teachers, right, uh, yes. which again, you know, had all sorts of important things to say about uh, Korean language education and, and the role of teachers in Korea. I think that was a wonderful whirlwind roundup of the year. <laughs> we appreciate that. Some uh, great titles there to check out for anyone who has uh, perhaps missed them this year. Okay, we'll leave it there, Barry. Thank you as always. Uh, Merry Christmas, yes. and uh, we'll see you again in the new year. Take care. Okay, Merry Christmas. Violinist Ichiyu, concertmaster at Staatskapelle Berlin. You are listening to Korea 24. It's time now for our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us in the studio today, our guest editor, Chris Welsh, who's filling in for Richard once again. Chris, hello. It's good to see you again. It's been a while. Yeah, thanks. Nice to meet you too. Okay, so let's get straight into those stories. What do you have for us first? First, we're going to take a look at an article written by uh, Park Han-sol in the culture section of the Korean Herald. It's about Yi Su-gyang's art exhibition that's currently being held in Seoul. Okay, so can you tell us a bit more? What kind of art can people expect to see at this exhibition? Yeah, the title of the exhibition is called Nine Dragons in Wonderland. Pak calls it a bizarre dreamland ceramic forest. So he has taken the old ceramic shards that have been discarded by master craftsmen of Korea and has assembled them back together in various configurations using resin and gold leaf to repair the cracks. As Park has stated, the finished product really does resemble a ceramic forest. Okay, that sounds fascinating. So what is the artist's reasoning for making such art then? 
Park claims that the theme behind this work makes much more sense in Korean, E's native language. So in English, we have different sounding words for crack and gold. But in Korean, the words are pronounced the same, gum. Mm. Park writes that this work is meant to highlight the imperfections and turn them into an organic structure within its own story. Right, so that's quite a fun play on words there as well, I see. So is there any significance to the exhibition's title as well? Because it's quite a resting title, Nine Dragons in Wonderland. There is. Uh, Park says that the title is inspired by the ancient Chinese legend of the nine hybrid children of the Dragon King. E claims that her work is meant to express her views on tradition and different cultures fusing together, and I think you can really see that reflected in her artwork. Well, it sounds fascinating. So when and where can visitors see her exhibition then? So E's exhibition will uh, run until February the 10th at the Page Gallery in Songdong District, Seoul, and that's right next to Seoul Forest. Okay, let's move on to our next story. What else do you have for us today? Next, we have an article written by the Korean Herald's Hwang Dong-hee about KBS's 2023 symphony lineup, which is set to be packed full of acclaimed soloists not only from Korea, but all around the world. Hwang writes that uh, the piano will be at the forefront of the 2023 lineup. Half of the 12 concerts will feature internationally known pianists Sonu Ye-kwan, uh, Pascal Rogue, and Anna Vinitskaya, all of whom who have won international competitions in piano. Sounds great. I understand that's not all, right? That's right. Um, the piano is certainly not the only thing to be looking forward to. Hong says that the KBS Symphony will also feature virtuoso violinist Gideon Kramer and the Japanese-American violinist Midori, who notably made her first debut when she was just 11 years old at the New York Philharmonic. Uh, KBS Symphony music director alluded to the idea that he was aiming for diversity and variety with the international selection of music- musicians. Okay, and when does the season officially start then? Huang writes that the KBS Symphony Orchestra will begin on January 28th next year, obviously, with Mahler's Symphony No. 5, a throwback to the Symphony Orchestra's uh, performed Mahler's Symphony No. 9 as their 2022 opening performance. Don't forget to check the article in tomorrow's Korean Herald for a preview of some of the other pieces that the Symphony Orchestra will play throughout the next year. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for bringing us those stories, Chris, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Won Jangwo, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow in the case of a cold snap. Ensure to keep your home warm, especially if you have children, elderly family members or patients living with you. Those who have high blood pressure or weak heart conditions must warm up exposed parts of their bodies, especially their heads. If you experience extreme chills, fatigue, slurred speech, loss of memory or sense of direction... Visit a hospital immediately, as these are symptoms of hypothermia. If you experience numbness or paleness in your hands, feet, ears, nose or any tip of your body, this could be frostbite. Take a warm shower. If the symptoms persist, go to the hospital. If you plan on exercising, make sure you stretch sufficiently to avoid injuring your joints. If you plan on leaving your house empty for a long time, leave your taps running slightly to prevent the pipes from freezing. 
please check our website at world.kbs.co.kr for up-to-date information and procedures. 